New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Phil Cousineau was once told by master teacher and psychologist, the late Rollo May, that the myth of Sisyphus is an antidote to the modern myth of progress. Myths can and do reveal perennial truths about human nature and culture, and mythographers are fond of saying that myths are stories that never happened, but are always happening. The Greek myth of Sisyphus is a tale that unveils our valiant and irrepressible desire to create something unique out of our lives despite our despair or our defeats. Today we'll be plunging the depths and fullness of this misunderstood myth with master Greekophile Phil Cousineau. Phil Cousineau is a freelance writer, filmmaker, mythographer, and storyteller he has published over 40 books and has worked with many of the leading mythologists of our time, including Joseph Campbell and Alexander Elliott. For over three decades, he has led study groups to Greece and other places in Europe in the British Isles and lectured on mythology in the modern world. His most recent book is The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. Join us for the next hour as we explore with our guest, Phil Cousineau, the meaning of the Sisyphus myth and how it can inspire us in our own dark night of the soul. I'm speaking with Phil from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Phil, welcome. Welcome, old friend. It's wonderful to be back with you in conversation, however virtual. <laughs> Oh, it's so mutual. I'm so glad to be with you once more, and especially to be talking about this particular myth. First of all, I would love to go back in your own history and when you fell under the spell of Greece and its mythological roots. Well, thank you for starting out with such a robust mythic question, because I believe um, in in the, the truth in the depth of what the, the great Italian mythographer Roberto Colasso said, when did it all begin? That is the single mythic question. When did our lives begin? When did the universe begin? When did an idea first come into your head? So for me, it was undoubtedly growing up in one of the last households in America that actually read books out loud together as a family. We 
had a TV along with everybody else, late 50s, early 60s, and then one day the television broke. My dad spent 10 minutes trying to fix it, couldn't, kicked the old Philco down the stairs into the basement, turned around and earnestly shouted to us, we are now going to read books out loud together, pause, as a family. And that's what we did for the next several years. Every Friday and Saturday night, we read Mark Twain. We read Mutiny on the Bounty. We read the Greek myths, Homer, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, but also Ovid. And it was in Ovid that my memory, which is a merciful editor, as we know, <laughs> seems to recall a scene in which Orpheus is playing his lyre in honor of the disappearance of his wife in the underworld. And Ovid writes that Sisyphus put down his stone, and even the stone wept at the beauty of the music. Somehow that got into my 10-year-old head, and I'd never forgotten it. So it was always, uh, again, a robust myth for me. I studied it again in college, and then I began to see the layers and layers of meaning. As our old friend Justine Joe Campbell once said, you know you have mythic art, painting, music, or the story, if it's inexhaustible. If you can go back to the Vermeer, go back to Ode to Joy by Beethoven, go back to a Greek story like Sisyphus, and it reveals itself over and over and over again. So I've been living with this for a while, and I began using it in my writing classes because I found that the Sisyphus story, which is it's about torment and torture, struggle, but the benevolent side of struggle. The question with writing in my life and, and in all the arts is, can you do it again and again and again, and then find meaning in sometimes even in the monotony? That was one of Rollo May's takes on the Sisyphus Smith, that it allows us to find dignity in the routines of our day. If you can't find dignity in, let's say, the metaphorical pushing of the bullet to the top of the hill and then watching it heartbreakingly roll back to the bottom of the hill, then you're in the wrong line of work. So the the real inspiration, I would think, and which I did for the book, took place in around 2010 when I was leading another group, 25 people or so, around Greece, Epidaurus, Delphi, uh, Santorini. And we ended up in Corinth one day, and that allowed me to tell the story of Sisyphus in 15 minutes or so for my group, because he was king, king of Corinth, which most people forget. And afterwards, I, I had this feeling, because I was trying to make the story relevant, everyone is Sisyphus, I told that group today. We all have our boulder. What is your boulder? Is it too heavy for you, or is it just right? It seems like it's meaningless, right? But can you find meaning in the pushing of your boulder? If it's love, if it's work, career, whatever your boulder might be. I knew at that moment that I had seized the imagination of my group, which is your goal as a storyteller. As the group dispersed afterwards, and I told them to wander around the ruins of the Temple of Apollo and so on, I happened to see against the tree, a beautiful olive tree next to where I was talking, an old leather-bound notebook. And instantaneously, the thought came to me, 
Sisyphus must have left this behind. <laughs> so it's a bit of a leap of faith, but that's what often what happens when you have a notion, as my dad used to say, a notion for a piece of music or a photograph, uh, a dance, like Isidore Duncan. You find them in, in micro moments. And so rather than censoring myself, oh, that's nuts, that's crazy, I did what I think is the writer's equivalent of what Paul Clay once said when asked what drawing is. And that great Swiss artist said, drawing is no more than taking a line out for a walk. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. And I love the mystery of, you know, you taught me, Phil, introduced me to the phrase, noticing something out of the corner of your eye. And it seemed like that notebook really, really came from some mysterious source that's available to all of us. Wonderfully put. Thank you, Justine. It reminds me of a a desperately beautiful phrase by the Portuguese poet Fernando Pessoa, who once said, everything is something else comma, besides. Now that is, remember, Joe Campbell used to talk about Cezanne. Uh, Artists have the mythic slant on life. In other words, you're looking at the movie, the artwork, a relationship of your best friends, and you can somehow sometimes see through the scrim, and you can see the archetype behind it. You can see the story behind the story. So that's what I took and ran with. Because what it allowed me to do was tell the full bore story of a myth, one of the most famous and instantly recognizable myths from antiquity, but tell it from his point of view. That's what the, the, the metaphor of the lost notebook suddenly appearing, maybe after a rainstorm or, or it, the, the underground caverns shot it up into the everyday world. But that metaphor worked because we often think, what would Cezanne have said? What would Rilke have said if, they, if he had lived longer? What would Joe Campbell say about the mythic proportion of the pandemic that we are in right now. So I began writing this a number of years ago, but it was in, you might say, and I I use this phrase advisedly, in the dark night of the soul, in the worst moments of the pandemic, when I found myself walking back and forth down the hallway in our little house here on Telegraph Hill in San Francisco, doing the same thing again and again and again. And it, it occurred to me that this story that has haunted me for so many years could be a metaphor for today. And that's what I'm interested in, not just the, uh, the, the old myths in amber, as it were, but the retelling of the myths for today. One of the last conversations I had with Joe Campbell before I went out to Paris in uh, the summer of 87 was when I was telling him that I was using some of his ideas from the hero's journey, but also my own research in the myth, Mersha Eliade, Alex Elliott, uh, Maria Woodman, to interpret modern life, from sports to movies to politics. And on the phone, Justine, he said, well, that's, that's marvelous, Phil, in that great Bronx accent of his, that's marvelous. Just make it your own. 
And that has been my signal. Don't just retell them, but somehow bring them up to date. And as Camus said, all those stories, our legends, our fairy tales, the mythic material needs someone in every era to breathe new life into them. That's what I've tried to do with Sisyphus. And you know, Phil, you mentioned Camus. Albert, he's the uh, French philosopher, and he mentions um, Sisyphus specifically. Tell us a, a bit about what you discovered in that essay that he wrote. Well, let's remember that the myth goes back at least 2,500 years. We have fragments. I have <laughs> consulted something called the Perseus Project, wonderfully named, that has as many references to any hero or heroine, god or goddess in, the, in antiquity, which then allows you to compare all those different sources. I found 82 references to Sisyphus, but no complete story. So I had to piece them all together, which was a great challenge because there's a scholar in me that wants to get the Greek right, <laughs> and then there's the novelist who wants to take a few leaps forward. Why? So the story can touch people now, today, in their hearts. I'm going to interrupt you for just a second before we go on because I want you to really flesh out and complete that story uh, before our break. But I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He, his latest book is The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, philcousineau.com. And he spells his name, uh, his last name, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U, philcousineau.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Phil Cousineau. He's a filmmaker, mythographer, storyteller, and his latest book is The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. And we're talking about an essay that the French philosopher, the late French philosopher Albert Camus wrote that attract your attention, and I'd love for you to share that with our listeners, Phil. Thank you, Justine. In 1987, I led a one of my mythic tours to Paris. And afterwards, the charismatic owner of Shakespeare and Company bookstore, uh, George Whitman, invited me to stay afterwards. And I spent nearly a year in Paris 
writing, writing, writing. And one day I was walking along the Seine past those wonderful shiny green metal book. They're called the, the Buccanists. Old books. A boucan is a wonderful word that the French have to describe the book that you take everywhere with you because you love it so much. I wish we had the equivalent in English. So one day I saw in French uh, Albert Camus' Myth of Sisyphus. And within this book of sparkling, coruscating essays, I found his five-page essay that he wrote while he was one of the heads of the French resistance during the Nazi occupation. And this was exactly what I needed because it became, as they called it, one of the most mimeographed essays in the 20th century. Why? Because he wrote it as an allegory to keep emboldening, there's a good word for this, emboldening the, the often bereft members of the French resistance who had to stand up against the authoritarianism of the Nazis. And the, the essay ends with one of the most mystifying lines I think, again, of the 20th century, after describing how uh, the great Greek hero is sentenced by Zeus to an eternity of pushing a boulder up the mountain, only to watch it roll back to the bottom of the hill, after beautifully describing this, Camus ends the essay by saying, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. That line came back to me in the dark night of the soul last summer, summer 2020, in the worst nights of the pandemic, because I was bereft, melancholic, as most of our listeners uh, must have been, and yet I refused, Justine, to believe that it was all meaningless. I had to believe that I could pull something out, even of the dark night of my soul, the dark night of the culture's soul, the dark night of the, of the, in the wilderness of the world— and so I began writing and then expanding this story. Why? I now hear one of my other mentors, uh, Houston Smith, asking an audience once at UCLA when we were lecturing together, but Phil, the real religious question is, why bother? <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> what, he, what he meant was, why bother to think more deeply? Why bother to try to find meaning, frankly, in a meaningless world? He, he's overlapping the, the existentialist notion that there is no outside meaning, there's the meaning that we make. And in that moment last summer, I decided I had to turn this story around to help us because it's a parable for this modern world, our fight against authoritarianism, as Sisyphus had to fight against uh, Zeus and his dominating ways, condemning this great hero to a life in the underworld. Because we were all there. We were all in hell during the pandemic. And I would argue that if our legends, fairy tales, myths, our dreams, our novels, our output of art cannot address the dark night of the soul, it ain't art. So, Phil, I would love for you to give us a bit of the overview of the myth or the overstory. You you mentioned the betrayal. You mentioned the thunder god Zeus. <laughs> so help us to, to have some of the overstory. Yes, I would be delighted to because I feel, along with my fellow Detroit poet Philip Levine, that reading stories can change you. 
A great story gets into your bloodstream. It gets into your dream stream, to coin a new word. And that is Sisyphus for our time. So it goes like this. And it's a story that reaches back at least to the 5th or 6th century BC. Uh, Homer actually refers to Sisyphus briefly. And he was writing in the 8th century. But it's something happened. And you might say in the world's soul in Athens during the so-called classical age, those 50 years when democracy is born and the playwrights begin actually retelling some of the old stories. So the versions that I'm relying on here are, are not that obscure. They were actually written by Aeschylus, Euripides, Sophocles, later Ovid. All the great playwrights had a shot at this. Why? because Sisyphus becomes a symbol of the resistance against authoritarianism and evil and the willingness to sacrifice yourself to a greater cause. The story is this. Sisyphus is the king of Corinth. He is a great innovator. He is credited with this. You know, Justine, that I love words. I've written books on word origins. The very name is not accidental. See Sophos, as in Sophia, which is what? Wisdom. Sisyphus means the very wise. Homer calls him the wisest of all mortals. So immediately, this goes against the notion that this is a cautionary tale. Tale. This is what happens as the nuns would wrap my knuckles with a ruler. This happened. I love the nuns, but they did wrap my knuckles. This is what happens if you ask too many questions. This is what happens if you go against God or the gods. So that's the twisted, or one of my favorite words, the transmogrification of the Sisyphus tale. The beauty of it is that one day, he is walking or riding a horse in some versions out beyond the walls of Corinth, and he hears the screech of an eagle. Being of the mythic kind, <laughs> he knows that Zeus is near because Zeus used to transform himself into eagles for one purpose, to abduct beautiful young women or young nymphs or goddesses. And in this case, Zeus in a, a finger snap, Zor, uh, swoops down, as Teilhard de Chardin says, the thing swooped down from heaven. And he seizes a young nymph and then spirits her away. Well, Sisyphus knows that this is that moment, as Amy Adams says in one of my favorite science, science, science fiction movies, Arrival. She says, there are days that define your life beyond your knowledge. And this is that moment. And I'm trying to rewrite the story so that a reader can look and say, what was that moment for me? What was that moment when the thing swooped down and forever changed my life? And I had to make a moral choice. That's what's so profoundly powerful about this myth. Because that young nymph was the daughter of the river god. And the river god, Asopus, comes looking for his daughter, who has been abducted by Zeus. This happened at least 100 times in the Greek myths. And Rumor, who is a goddess, by the way, Rumor is a goddess who spreads news and gossip. <laughs> she comes into the story and tells the river god that there's only one person who saw what happened, 
And that's the king. You need to go to Sisyphus to find out what happened to your daughter. You feel how human this moment is because every parent has gone through this. What do you do if someone steals your child? You see how deeply relevant this is now. The river god comes up and says, and this is where I embroider the story because it's the, a missing half of the Greek myth. Asopa says, if you don't, Sisyphus, if you don't tell me where my daughter is, I am going to turn off the water to your citadel. If any of you, dear listeners, have been in Greece, you know what that means. It's one of the hottest places on the planet. Every, every city has a cistern and a well. If that water is cut off, what happens? People die. So Sisyphus now has the great mythic choice. Either he says, pretends that he doesn't know and saves his own neck, because if he gives up the story, Zeus will have his revenge. Or he tells the truth, and he may be seized by Hermes or Hades down to the underworld. But because he loves his wife, Justine, this is a love story. Because he loves his four sons. Because he loves Corinth. He cannot abide the thought of them dying of thirst. So he tells Asopus, it was Zeus. He's got your daughter. And with that, Asopus goes to try to rescue his daughter, but gets there too late. Zeus, of course, is outraged. And again, this is metaphorical. All tyrants are outraged when they're questioned. And they say, who are you to ask me? Who are you to question me? So Zeus immediately spirits uh, the poor king down to the underworld and says, you will never be seen again. Your task of tasks is to push his boulder up the mountain throughout eternity. So here comes now the profoundly relevant aspect of the story. What the story is asking, asking us as readers, what is your position on authority. Do you believe everything the Pope tells you? Do you believe everything the local health commission tells you? Do you believe what your parents, all voices of authority, the Greeks mythologize the urge to say, you have to follow your own daemon. You have to follow your own inner voice. Because if you let that go, your soul is lost. So Sisyphus in the underworld he begins to wonder about the pain, the suffering, the repetition. How long can I hold on? How long can I hold on? And you think for many people, the story ends there. And it becomes one of the parables of hand slapping. This is what happens if you question authority. I remember one of my nuns back in Wayne St. Mary's outside Detroit saying, Philip, you ask too many questions. St. Augustine said, there is a special place in hell for people who ask too many questions. <laughs> and I think this is why he then becomes, Sisyphus becomes, one of the most beloved characters in antiquity. Paintings, uh, vases, amphoras, nevertheless, all the retellings and plays and short stories, right up to today, when arguably the Sisyphus image of pushing the boulder is the most depicted Single character in New Yorker cartoon history. <laughs> more Sisyphus cartoons. And I'm told by tattoo artists, more Sisyphus, uh, and, and Camus quotes, by the way, uh, images for tattoos than any other character from antiquity. Why? 
because we're looking for somebody to back us up in our deep desire, first to resist, let's say, evil authority, and then secondly, to forge, as James Joyce once said, end of portrait of an artist, to forge in the smithy of our soul, the unformed conscience of our race. What does that mean? The ability, as I tried to do in the last part of the Sisyphus novel, for him to seize that boulder and find a way to get out of hell and back to his wife and sons and Corinth. So ultimately, this is a story of triumph over sorrow. I love that. Thank you so much for giving us that uh, overstory of Sisyphus. And um, I'm here with Phil Cousineau, mythographer and storyteller, as you can hear. And his latest book is The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with storyteller and writer of many, many books and mythologist or mythographer, as some are referred to. I love that word, mythographer. Phil Cousineau, and his latest book is The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. You label him a, a rebel hero. So in his going down into Hades, um, there there's a moment uh, to get out of Hades. He was abducted, and I'm, I'm also you. You mentioned earlier about authoritarianism, and I know that you mention in your book there's a phrase that you talk about how how uh, authority uh, these authority figures they use others to do their bullying for them, you know. So in this case, you know, he got, you know, Sisyphus down into Hades by other means other than himself. And uh, it, um, it, it's like that particular god, Zeus, is is one who is a bully and, and does not know love and, and only knows vengeance and betrayals and things like that. So uh, here we are, Phil, in this day and time. I can't help but think as authoritarianism, as political regimes are on the rise, this myth really has, I believe, great significance for our time. Uh, Do you have any comment on that? Yes, many, many. Uh, how many programs can we do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of my leading lights on this, Reuben Snake, a great Winnebago leader, who uh, Houston Smith and I interviewed for a film that we did on Native American spirituality, cited Edmund Burke, the great English-Irish jurist, who said, the only way for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. That's at the heart of this book. Sisyphus speaks up, even if he has to sacrifice. So 
what I glean from that is that the Greeks eventually, with this whole second round of writing in the 5th century, after the, the much harsher myths earlier, earlier on, began to value cleverness over strength. I think this is one of the great dividing lines in democratic thinking, but also the thinking of, thinking of the imagination, you might say. This is why I had to come up with a ruse, as Sisyphus did in the, un, in the underworld, in which he seeks the help of Persephone, who is the, the, the wife, as we know, for four or five months, depending on the tradition of the myth, in the underworld with Hades. And what I came up with was that because she knows that her mother Demeter is grieving every hour, every day, every month while her daughter is in the underworld, she would have had the capability, the capacity to empathize with Sisyphus's wife, Merope. So when Sisyphus says, just allow me to go out three days, just I promise I'll be back. Just let me go because I need to take care of my family and all of the civic matters because I'm king. And of course, he has no plans on returning. But what the playwrights say again and again and again is, he lived to a ripe old age, which I feel is a beautiful release point in the story. The Greeks have this lovely word called kephi, K-E-F-I. And what it means is an act that releases joy. Isn't that profound? So if you think of uh, Alan Bates and Zorba the Greek dancing with Anthony Quinn on the beach at the end of that movie, that's, that's the release of kephi. That's what I'm trying to do in this story. Because he is overjoyed when he's allowed to go back with Hermes to the overworld and do what? In some ways, redeem himself, because we know that he was a bit of a strategist. He did some things that he was ashamed of. He goes back and he founds one of the rounds, the Isthmian Games, one of the four Olympic competitions. He reinvents navigation. There are so many things that he's credited with. And I'm saying, as a writer of a novel here, that these are acts of atonement, that once you and I and millions are released from the pandemic, when we are given a barter card to, uh, to get out of jail, to get out of hell for a, f a few days, it's possible for us to release some joy. And what would the joy be, Justine? That we're alive. At the heart of the story is an utter passion for joy. In the midst, what was it our friend Joe used to say, uh, the true meaning of life is participation with joy in the sorrows of the world. Do you remember that? That's what he got from the Buddha. And that's at the heart of this story that I think is why we actually remember it. It's not self-pity. Because the Greeks were making jokes about Sisyphus long before the New Yorker. <laughs> it's something else is happening. He becomes equal to his burden. So psychologists like James Hillman have loved this story for, for decades. We're not just identifying with the struggle, which originally, by the way, it meant to strive with all of your strength. That's what struggle means. So this, in my way of retelling the story, in what they call the mythopoetics, go back to an ancient story and retell it so it means something today. 
I think it will help a lot of people coming out of the pandemic or their own profound personal uh, bouts with melancholy, depression, meaninglessness to say, even, even within your hellish last couple of years, you and I can find joy again. I'm re- I'm reminded of a part of the book that you give Sisyphus the words of feeling sympathy for the rock, this this rough hewn stone that is lying in wait. Uh, I, I'm going to read your words here. Lying in wait for me like an assassin in the terminal moraine. Of loose gravel and broken stones, I hear the scrunching of pebbles and the shuffling of clods of dirt as a stone settles like a sunken ship onto the sea floor. And then you later you say, I'm coming to love the challenge of pushing it without suffering, without pain, without resentment. My heart feels lighter. That's the key to the book. Thank you for pointing that out, for remembering it. That took a while to get to because the first 792 drafts of the book <laughs> really has him angry, grief-stricken, resentful, as we all are. As we're looking at our mortgage payment or troubles with our kids, trouble with the law, at some point, We have to turn around, I think, this is the philosophical part of me in the book, and learn to love the struggle. Not romanticize it, not trivialize it, but look at that stone as something we become affectionate towards. I had to do that with this very manuscript. Uh, You you look at the the letters of Georgia O'Keeffe as a painter, um, Mark Rothko painting, at some point. You have to look at that moment when you re-enter the studio and say, all right, it's 6 o'clock in the morning and I worked till 4 last night, (laughs) but I love this. As hard as it is, I love this. The other aspect of the the boulder that I want to point out, do you remember that marvelous uh, saying by the 12th century alchemists uh, about how God is an infinite sphere whose center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere? I have reworked that for Sisyphus looking at the, at the boulder. That is his entire world as our great tasks are. Whatever the task is, that p- positions you at the center of the world. And then the question is, are you up to the task? Are you up to it? Uh, most people remember on some level one of the 77 aphorisms that were carved into the pedestals in the Temple temple of Apollo in Delphi. And that is... uh, Is that know yourself? No. Know thyself. That's one, but there were 76 others. So when you entered the temple, you would look at all these sayings of the seven great sages the condensed wisdom, you might say, of centuries and centuries. One of them was struggle for life. Mm. The Greeks knew that it's the core of life. You don't stay in the struggle. You find some way through imagination, through heart, through soul-making, friendship, conversation, 
to transmute that struggle into something more. But the other one was complete your task, which I find <laughs> this shiver goes up and down my spine, as the singer once said. That's how I felt trying to finish this book. I can't leave Sisyphus on the mountain. <laughs> that would be awful for the reader. Fortunately, I found there was a way for him to get back home again. And in some ways, as we know, from, from Homer to Willa Cather, there are only two or three stories in the world, but they keep repeating themselves over and over again. And arguably, one of those three stories or one of those three plots is, how do you get back home? That's what Sisyphus is thinking on the mountain every time he pushes the boulder. I think that's universal in that it will help people today because most of us, what's Shakespeare's great phrase, time is out of joint. We, we all need a cosmic chiropractor right now <laughs> to put time back into joint, and we'll need new stories in order to do that. I was relieved when I got to the part of the book and of the story and the myth where Sisyphus was able, maybe it was when he heard the song of the lyre uh, uh, that, that he paused, and he started to pause before he trudged back down to the abyss where the stone relentlessly rolled back down to, and he, he started to take his time walking back down the mountain and 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 contemplating a, a lot of truth for his life in his own ego. Uh, I think it was he he realized that he had made some mistakes in his life, and he started to really bring those up and and repent of those and feel badly for that. Comment on that. Thank you for noticing that. That was another of the breakthroughs in the book. Wait, I'm sorry. I, I, I led you into that question, but we have to take a break here. <laughs> so I'm going to remind our listeners I'm here with Phil Cousineau, and we're talking about the his most current book, The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, Phil Cousineau, C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U, philcousineau.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Phil Cousineau, and he's the author of The Lost Books of Sisyphus. And and I was asking about the the pause and his starting to to remember Sisyphus, uh, his hubris and his his misdeeds, so to speak, as he walks back down the mountain to once again pick up the rolling of the stone back up the mountain. Yes, thank you for noticing that. That was another of the major breakthroughs for me in the story. Because I was talking a few years ago with the great King Arthur scholar, Jeffrey Ash, about this myth. He knew the Holy Grail myth. He knew this one. And what was profound for him was this passage in which I, I write that Sisyphus turns, pivots on the top of the mountain when he tries to push the boulder over, tip it over to the other side, because he's been promised, if you can do that, if you can tip it over, that means your sentence will be commuted, as it were. However, the Greeks were tougher than that, because in some ways our struggles never end. It becomes a different kind of struggle. <laughs> we age, we have health problems, money problems, whatever it might be. It just transforms into a yet a different problem. The question is always, are you up to the task? Can you get over your resentment or your sense of entitlement, for goodness sakes? He's king. He would be a proper character for this. So Jeffrey and I were talking in Glastonbury, England, about this story. I, I was crazy with delight that we could talk about Sisyphus in King Arthur's own backyard. And he says, well, Phil, uh, walking back down the hill at some point, he would have to know that he could never catch up with the boulder, which means that time essentially stops. He doesn't have to run after it. He will never catch up. So at that moment, and now this is where me as a novelist jumps in, and I create this motif in the middle, smack dab in the middle of the book, of a portal opening. The portal being a symbol of time and space being suspended, even during the worst of the pandemic. When you see a window opening and you think, oh my God, I could just whine and whine and whine. Why me? <laughs> Why not somebody else? Why did this happen to, happen to me or my business? You hear people complain, complaining that way too. So I then use the, the portal as a motif for taking your breath, stopping time, and in Sisyphus's case, reaching into his tunic to pull out the bronze nib pen and the parchment paper that his beautiful wife Merope had wisely slipped into his inner pocket before Hermes took him down to the underworld. And why is this important? Because that act of writing is symbolic of us becoming contemplative ruminating, trying to go to the depths of a problem. We all, it came to me during the pandemic and through other tough parts of our life, someone dying in our life, we, we lose our house in a flood, whatever it might be. As William James said so beautifully, it's not what happens to us that matters. It's how we respond to the experience of what matters. In this case, Sisyphus begins to write his own version of the story, which is a reflection of a, just a recent revelation I had that the wonderful Greek word kleos, which is usually describes glory. So Achilles will do 
anything to be remembered throughout time for his glorious battle against Hector in the war. But there's a secondary meaning of Cleos that I've been using with my writing students, which seems to help, and I just love it. And that is the deep desire in the Greek soul, and I think in the Western soul as well, for us to seize the opportunity to tell our own story. Otherwise, Justine, someone is going to tell it for us. And then we lose control of our story. So in some ways, this is a book about narratives. The overstory, the understory. How can you get to? Do you have the courage? Do you have the strength to get to the true core of your own life? I love that. And I love it that the gods don't write. <laughs> they, they don't write. It's a human endeavor they don't understand the power of that. So using that device, so to speak, that literary device in retelling the myth and saying, okay, that Sisyphus through his wife had this pen and he would scratch out these, these notes would take him down to what, what mythologist uh, Michael Mead would say, down to soul rather than transcending it all, uh, it's really we're seeking to do, to find meaning. That, that's a wonderful modern counterpart to what I see again and again in the Greek stories that I've loved since I was a kid, that I try to teach every time I take groups back to Greece. So we're not just looking at the beauty of the ancient ruins. We're, we're, I urge the people in my, in my groups to look for the psychological counterparts in their own inward life. So one case is that the many of the ancient writers had this very compelling phrase that you go on the quest, you go on the journey, you deliberately go into the underworld, which is what? Your own unconscious. To face your own shadow, to do what? The old phrase was to win your soul. Isn't that breathtaking? It's a bit of a riff on John Keats, we are in a veil of soul-making, but the Greeks, who were very competitive people, said, you have to go back. You've lost your soul when you did something treacherous. You lost your soul when you had an affair or you embezzled money or you made the wrong choices. The purpose in life, then, is to win your soul back. And there, another angle on this, if you will indulge me for a second, Michael Finley wrote a gorgeous book on, on Odysseus many years ago in, in which he, he credits Homer for turning the gods and goddesses into human beings, comma, so that we might know ourselves better. Oh my gosh, that gets to the heart of it. Because if you have ever felt envy or lust or a, an immediate irrational response to beauty, either a beautiful man or beautiful woman, you're in mythic territory. And why can we begin to recognize these things and see them in our own lives? Because the great playwrights found the humanity in the gods and goddesses. That's what I try to help people do. And that's the reason for the mythopoetics of this. I feel, in a sense, uh, insulted by centuries of misreading the Sisyphus story as just a hand slap. Because as long as you think that was wrong of him and he's paying a price throughout eternity, what do you lose as a modern person? 
you lose this, what my friend Alex Elliott used to call the mythologem. Isn't that a wonderful word? It's an immediately recognizable archetype. So if you see the Wicked Witch of the West flying on her broom through the outside the window of Dorothy as she's spinning down into Oz, that is an archetype. You don't have anybody. You don't need explanation. Sisyphus with a boulder is immediately recognized by people all around the world. Why? Because it reflects something in our own inward life that is pushing and hopes, <laughs> hopes against hope for a moment of release. <laughs> exactly. I, I'd love to go out with one other like image that you leave us with, and we only have a, a minute or two to really do this one. This is where Persephone argues with Hades. I mean, this is, Hades is not used to anyone quarreling with him. It just isn't done. And and here the feminine is is coming in and arguing for, for the case for uh, Sisyphus. Yes, again, thank you for isolating this, this image, this mythologem again, if you will. I, I find that uh, very touching because there are a few references in antiquity to Hades uh, weeping black tears. That is one of the most arresting images anywhere. And it took a woman for him to release emotion. A woman, uh, the daughter of a goddess, Persephone. And what she is doing in that scene that I write is saying, I know grief, husband. I know what it means to lose someone. And I know what it is for someone, my mother, Demeter, to lose me. So I beg you, she says this in, in kind of massage language, to help at this moment. Because Sisyphus is a king. He's special. And he deserves his, what they would have called, his honors. He deserves to go back and allow his wife, his children, the entire city to grieve so they can go on again. The world has to go on. Now, remember, this is the, the goddess speaking who personifies that first moment of bloom when the flowers come out, the first day of spring. The Greeks personified that. It's one of the happiest, most joyous moments in life to see what Emerson say, the earth laughs in flowers. And that's, mm. that's a pure Persephone image. So I'm trying my best to show these radiating moments of color, light, compassion, even at the cost of our own sorrow. So Sisyphus going back to earth is all of us finding our way home again after we've been through hell. Oh, beautifully done. Beautifully done. Thank you so much, Phil, for being with us today and fleshing out this whole myth for us to contemplate. Um, I've been speaking with Phil Cousineau and his latest book, The Lost Notebooks of Sisyphus, which is a novel. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, philcousineau.com. He spells his last name C-O-U-S-I-N-E-A-U, philcousineau.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3745. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.